Hey, y'all, my name is Will Cook. You can have a seat. Um, serve as a student pastor here. This morning, we are going to continue in our Advent series. Uh, we, we are going through uh, Luke chapter 1, looking at uh, the birth of Christ, the prophecies uh, leading up to the birth of Christ, and um, just a marvelous time of year where we get to celebrate God coming to rescue us, his, his rescue plan in, in full effect. Um, happy belated Thanksgiving. Uh, as we feasted all week on physical food, it, it's so great to come together now and prayerfully and hopefully feast on the Word of God. We'll be reading from Luke chapter 1. Um, our, our primary passage is going to start in verse 69. Uh, I think for a little bit of context, we're going to begin in verse 67. Uh, there's a Bible in front of you. If you're visiting with us, uh, maybe you left your, your Bible at home. We've got your backs. We've got you covered. The, uh, the, the great minds and generous hearts of PRBC leadership has said, why don't we put Bibles in the pews for anyone that may need it for Sunday? And then if they want to take that Bible home, by all means, take it home. We would love for that Bible to, to uh, pick up residence in your home and in your heart. So that is our gift to you as our uh, goal here is to purify the church and penetrate the culture. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll read our main passage, and then we'll, we'll pray, pray for God to bless the reading and teaching of his word, and then we'll just kind of dive in and, and pray for um, a great exegesis that impacts us and changes us from the inside out, that we would become the people that honor the Lord in word and deed. Uh, so here we have Luke chapter 1, and I'm going to begin in, in verse 67 and read through, I think, probably 75. Let's read together. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, you are so good. Lord, seeing us in our great need, cut off and cast away by our sin, sin that, that we brought upon ourselves, sin that we committed in our own will, things that we have done to rebel against you, Father. You saw fit to redeem us. God, you are worthy of praise. Lord, we, we lift our voices this morning, we lift our, our hearts, and God, we give you our lives. God, we thank you that seeing our need, you saw fit to send a rescuer for us in your son, Christ. And Lord, we praise you that Christ laid down his life that we could live. God, I pray this morning that as we read and take to heart these words that you have given us, that, that we would deeply appreciate having access to your word, that we wouldn't regard this with an attitude of, of carelessness, but Lord, we would hold these things dear to our hearts. God, I pray that 
you would equip me, that you would give me a sharp mind, that you would uh, speak through me words that we all need. God, convict me, convict our church, encourage me, encourage our church. Lord, raise us up as a people that bring glory to your name. And the things that we meditate on and the words that we choose and the way that we treat others. Lord, may our lives be an offering of praise and gratitude for all that you have done for us. We thank you for Christ and we pray this in his name. Amen. Unicorns, probably wasn't expecting that word. Unicorns are alive and well at least in the Cook household. You can take a quick stroll through our daughter's bedroom and the hallway and the living room and the bathrooms and the kitchens and the dining room. You'll find unicorns all around. Uh, I think that now we have this Facebook 10-year challenge. 10 years ago, there was no way I could have predicted or would have expected that my life would have so many unicorns in the midst of it. But here we are, a five-year-old girl and a three-year-old girl and unicorns as far as the eye can see. We have pink unicorns, we have rainbow unicorns, we have unicorn coloring books, we have stuffed animal unicorns, we have one of those candy dispensers with a button that you push that has a fan on it and a unicorn. It's so bad that we even have coloring book pictures featuring pilgrims, and Indians, and unicorns. Take a look here. This is my three-year-old daughter's coloring activity that she completed leading up to Thanksgiving, and she brought it home, and Claire was so curious about this picture and said, wow, this is a great job. Way, way to go, Landry. Tell me about this. And she said, well, 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 here is a pilgrim, and here is an Indian, and here is a unicorn. And that's the, the one that you see there on the right, directly underneath her name. So unicorns have invaded and taken over our lives. We have unicorns that are attached to a leash that at the push of a button, the unicorn prances around, makes a neighing sound, all to the theme of mythical music. Now, this is not my favorite toy, Grandparents, I implore you, I beg you, with Christmas season upon us, for the love of all things, please consider buying silent gifts, gifts that don't prance around and make neighing sounds and gallop to the beat of mythical music. And all the parents with little kids in the house together said, amen. No, I kid. I don't. I don't. There, there are quiet toys. There, there are things you can, just Amazon quiet toys and just see what you find. That's my, just, that's my challenge to you. Um, unicorns. Unicorns are fairy tale creatures. Uh, they, they are these mythical creatures that have superpowers. and They have this magical horn growing out of their forehead, out of the top of their head. Now, this is not such a far-fetched idea. Horns are quite a regular occurrence in nature. We see um, rhinoceroses and narwhals. I don't know how to pronounce rhinoceros, plural, so I just wanted to exaggerate it. Narwhals, uh, goats, cattle, uh, 
sheep have horns, and obviously living in South Georgia, uh, all of you hunters, uh, you're well aware that deer have antlers, uh, which is a slight variation of a horn. My understanding is that antlers shed annually, and horns remain with the animal uh, for the duration of their life, but, but nonetheless, you see all throughout nature animals that have these protrusions coming from their heads that we call horns, right? And so uh, take a rhinoceros, for example. A rhinoceros will, will use the horn as a, as a defense mechanism. If you've got a mother rhinoceros and she feels as though her calf is being threatened and she's going to do everything in her power to use her horn to completely obliterate uh, the enemy, right? And you have these, these bucks during the rut, these white-tail deer. They will just uh, hammer one another, man. They will uh, stomp in the ground and snort, and you'll see the fog coming out of their, their nostrils, and they'll charge one another, and they will uh, collide with their horns first because the, the antlers are the, the weapon of choice. That is their number one weapon. So either offensively or defensively, animals that have these antlers or the, these horns, they will use them as their number one weapon. So when we arrive at Luke chapter one, verse 69, and we see that God the Father has for us raised up a horn of salvation, this, in fact, is the image that should be conjured up in our imagination. And Claire and I went back and forth about this because last week, uh, Brian, spoiler alert, said that I was going to be preaching this week. And so I'm having lunch with a few friends Sunday after church. And they said, so you're preaching next week? And I said, yeah, I guess so. It kind of looks like it, huh? And they, so they said, uh, what's the horn of salvation? And, and me just trying to play it off. I guess you'll have to come next week and check it out because I had no idea what the horn of salvation was. So I took my best guess and I said, it's probably a trumpet that you blow uh, to signal a military victory after a fierce battle between nations. That was my best guess. No, that is not the case. And, and Claire and I were, were, were both a little bit um, confused about what a horn of salvation is. And so what we're gonna see is in the Greek, you have Keratos, uh, Soterios, which so, Soterios is that salvation part. That's the, the, the salvation. Uh, Keros uh, is a horn, right? And so you have this horn of salvation. Um, interestingly enough, one of my new friends brought up the fact that keratin uh, is one of the composites of these, these horns. These horns are made with keratin, and, and that's the Greek word keros, right? We get the word keratin from the Greek keros, and so there's your connection there. The horn of salvation, get this, is God's weapon for salvation, the horn of salvation is God's weapon for salvation. And this, this uh, terminology has long been used in, in the biblical uh, context. We see it in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where, where Hannah has prayed for a child, and, and God blesses Hannah with this child. And, and how does she pray? How does she respond? Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derives my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. So here in, in the book of 1 Samuel, we see Hannah using the same kind of terminology and what she is uh, referring to is, is perhaps like a stag uh, being out in the wilderness and, and lifting his head after eating from the ground and, and you just think, 
majestically what that stag looks like as he uh, kind of uh, gallops around in the woodland, right? She is lifting her strength. She is lifting her pride. She is lifting up this um, champion-like status that God has given her through this blessing in her son, Samuel. And so she says, God is my great weapon through this blessing that God has given me. I, I want to announce it to the world. He is my horn. He is my strength. He is my rock and he is my refuge. In 2 Samuel, uh, David, a person we're all familiar with in the Bible, King David will will use the same sort of terminology when he says, David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and here it is, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. And so here we we take a peek at how David uses this and, and he is essentially ascribing this terminology to God. He he is saying, God is my horn of salvation. God is to the psalmist, to the writer here. God is to David what the horn is to the ox. And we know that the ox or or the bull uh, would use that horn as a source of defense and a source of victory. Uh, here, here is perhaps the most succinct, uh, well-put-together understanding of this phrase, horn of salvation, that I could find. A horn is a sign of power, literally of an ox or metaphorically of a people. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, the horns refer, refer metaphorically to kings. So the horn of salvation indicates the saving power of the king. The four horns on the corners of the altars afforded sanctuary to a fugitive who clung to them. The horn of salvation in Luke chapter 1, verse 69, denotes royal saving power now belonging to the Messiah. So with this understanding in mind, now we we can better see what Zechariah truly meant when he was prophesying, uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to say, God has given us a horn of salvation. He was pointing to to Mary's womb. This wasn't in reference to John the Baptist. This was in reference to Christ. You gotta remember Elizabeth and, and Mary had this visitation before this prophecy. And so Elizabeth knew about Mary's pregnancy and she knew uh, that, that when she visited with Mary, uh, her own child inside of her leapt with joy at the pronouncement of this savior to come. And so now Zechariah is reiterating this. He's emphasizing this point and claiming that Christ, the child to be born is in fact, the horn of salvation. Not only does he emphasize this point, but he points attention to the fact that God is the one keeping his word. God is the one showing again his faithfulness to his people. And we need not gloss over that. You see, it is God who centuries before, millennia before, promised to his people that he would care for them, that he would guard them, that he would nourish them, that he would protect them, that he would grow them, and that, yes, he would, in fact, save them. And so now we are getting to the point where all of this, this great rescue plan has come to fruition. As we read this, we need to identify with the the heart and the emotion of Zechariah. And here's why. We still need a rescuer today. 
We still need a strength. We still need a defense. We still need an offense. We still need this, this solid rock that we can bank on to be there to rescue us from our enemy. And so we, along with Zacharias, say, praise God the Father. He is our horn of salvation. He provided a horn of salvation. He has given us rescue, right? God has kept his word. God has promised this throughout the ages. We see in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, where God first begins to show us how this this prophecy is going to work out. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, the, the, the question here, when we get to this pronoun about halfway through the verse, he to what does the pronoun he refer? It refers to the person of Christ. God is giving us a glimpse of what is going to take place thousands of years later, but we have it here in the fall. Just at the first sight of us demonstrating we have no ability to protect ourselves. We have no strength to guard ourselves. We have no way of protecting ourselves from the enemy. God says, it's gonna work out. I've got your backs. I am going to send someone who will literally crush your enemy. How awesome that that Brian was thinking along those lines this morning as he was speaking and praying for us. We see another prophecy in Psalm chapter 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Now, to be clear, this entire chapter is prophetic. We would call this a a messianic prophecy because it shows us there is a Messiah to come, right? The Messiah is our horn of salvation. But this should should spark in our minds kind of a a memory that we might have of, of Christ on the cross, where Christ himself utters the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right, this is evidence of this prophecy being fulfilled. This is evidence of God keeping his word. This is evidence of God not backing down on his commitment to his people, although we regularly back down on our commitment to him. Because here in this moment, we see David, the psalmist, with enemies around him crying out for a rescuer. Yet this isn't just about David. In fact, there is a bigger picture in view. And what it does is it points us to Jesus, the true horn of salvation. A couple of passages that we've been studying with our students, Isaiah chapter seven, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Two chapters later, Isaiah nine, for to us a child is born and to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So it may appear to you that these prophecies are a little bit uh, out of order as I present them to you. Why did you go to, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me before getting to these birth prophecies? And the reason for that is so that we can see uh, there, there was a plan from the beginning, right? This birth, this, this season that we celebrate the birth of Christ, this, this birth may, may be filled with lots of warm, fuzzy feelings for us. It may be a reminder that yes, in fact, God does love us. That yes, in fact, God wants us to be fulfilled and to be content in this life. He wants to give us peace. He wants to give us joy. But there was a price 
that had to be paid. And we see that on the front end, that God knew before sending Christ as a newborn baby, God knew that there would be a time when Christ would call out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let us not forget the price of our peace. May we never lose sight of what God has accomplished on our behalf. I had a great phone call this week with someone who is trying to offer godly wisdom and godly counsel to a couple who may be on the verge of divorce. And before you start thinking, who is that in our church? No, this is someone I know in Florida. So uh, you can kind of calm down for a second. But the person and I were talking, he said, man, I just want my friend to be happy. And I just don't know if this marriage is gonna make him happy. And I know God wants him to be happy. Friends, listen, I mean this in the most sincere way that I can explain it. When someone asks, does God want us to be happy? I think the resounding answer needs to always be yes and amen, comma, not at the expense of holiness. God wants us holy, and holiness brings a byproduct of happiness, You see, there is a cost for us to be happy. There is a high price that was paid for us to have true contentment in God. And the cost was that Christ was on the cross bearing the sins of the world, my sin and your sin. And I'll give you one more prophecy here, Isaiah chapter 53. Here is a glimpse of that price that was prophesied uh, thousands of years before, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There was a price. God saw the price coming from the outset of time, knowing that we need a savior. And he planned from the very beginning to raise up for us a horn of salvation. He is good. He is a good God. Now, in regard to these prophecies that we've just read, in regards to many other prophecies like them, I want to teach you guys a Latin term, census plenier. This is what our students have been studying upstairs on Wednesday nights in our 229 worship sessions. We've been going through kind of our own little Advent series, and we call it The King is Coming. And so we've been exploring these Old Testament prophecies and connecting them to the New Testament realizations of those prophecies. And so we've been studying folks like Adam and Eve and Hannah and David and Isaiah and Daniel, Micah, et cetera, et cetera. Others like them who, there there was no way, they simply could not have seen with their eyes the plan that God had in store. That there was simply no way, for example, as Isaiah is prophesying in chapter seven, and he's talking with King Ahaz, and he is trying to uh, give some wisdom to King Ahaz because Ahaz is surrounded with these, these armies that are ready and willing to wage war against him. They're trying to back him into a treaty, and Isaiah is talking to him, and he says, Ahaz, here's what you need to do. You need to listen to this prophecy from the Lord. They're gonna give you a son. A child is gonna be born from a virgin, right? There's the prophecy. So in Isaiah's perspective, in his view, he is thinking this has real-time implication, and it did, it did. Dot, 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 census 
plenier. What is census plenier? I'm not just trying to give you a fancy term to make it look like I am fancy because all of you know I am not fancy. Give me a $5 bill and 30 seconds at Taco Bell. You will see I am not fancy. Census plenier is a Latin phrase that means fuller sense or fuller meaning. It is used in biblical exegesis to describe the supposed deeper meaning intended by God, but not the human author. We no longer see, and when I say we, I'm talking about us, the church today. We collectively as God's people no longer see dimly. We see clearly, right? We we are not uh, waiting for a check to be cashed. We, we have seen that check hit the bank account. We, we have not picked up the phone and called 911 and now sitting around twiddling our thumbs for the ambulance to arrive. The ambulance is here. We are not waiting for God to send a horn of salvation. We are not waiting for God to raise up a child. We are not waiting for these prophecies to come to fruition. We see them clearly. Open your eyes. Would you peel back the layers that are trying to... Uh, Keep from your spiritual eyes, your, your heart, your, your soul, things that God has made real. Look to his word. Look to the body of believers. See how God has worked throughout the course of all time that you would be saved, that you would be redeemed. We think about Abraham, one of our great forefathers. What God promised to Abraham that his descendants would outnumber the stars, that Abraham's people would be God's people, that Abraham's children would be God's children. This promise has come true. And we don't merely see it looking ahead through a cloud of fog. We see it fully. We see it clearly. Hannah would have surely believed that God would train Samuel, equip Samuel, and use Samuel powerfully to restore some measure of righteousness to the nation of Israel. But how could she have ever seen that God would use Samuel to anoint a king that would sit on a temporary throne while thousands of years later, this king, David, would have his name mentioned in the genealogy of the true king who would reign forever from a heavenly throne? Hannah's faith was real. Her obedience was was real. So real that you could almost fill up a jar with her faith, with her obedience, and and pass it around for others. God spoke through Hannah. And what she would have understood then might have looked very different than the way we understand these words today. Now we see that yes, indeed, we have a horn of salvation, and he has dealt the death blow to the enemy. One question that comes up when we start reading through these Old Testament prophecies is this. Why did God make these promises to his people? Why are we and others like us, the children of God, why is the body of Christ the recipients of God's promise, of his faithfulness, of his commitment? One word, mercy. We see this in our text that we're studying this morning as Zechariah prophesies and points us back to the mercy of God that has been shown to those before us and now is being shown to us today. God is a God of mercy. That he would speak these promises, that he would fulfill these promises is an act of mercy. This is not an act of merit. 
So let's hold these two terms and compare and contrast against what merit on one side and mercy on the other. What do they mean? Merit is, is something that we've earned, right? If, if you come and work at my house in the yards and straighten up all the pine straw and trim all the bushes and cut all the grass and pull all the, 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 the weeds out of the flower bed, man, you've spent 10 hours there on Saturday. You have earned $5 at Taco Bell. Come on, we'll load up. We'll go to Taco Bell together, right? You've earned that. That's the least I could do for your hard work. But if my kids all conspire together and they decide that, that they're going to uh, TP the Christmas tree, and so we wake up early in the morning and we just see a uh, damp TP that is covering the Christmas tree, and we think to ourselves, who did this? And we find out it was our kids. They plotted, they planned, and they executed the perfect prank. Claire and I might be a little upset, especially Claire, because she does all the decorating. And we're very thankful for that. <laughs> they have earned maybe some consequences. They, they have earned uh, some, some punishment. But in an act of mercy, we withhold that. We draw back on those consequences. And instead of giving them what they deserve, we don't give them what they deserve. You see, merit is receiving something you have worked for, mercy is avoiding a consequence you have earned on yourself. All of us, like our forefathers, Abraham included, Hannah included, David included, Daniel included, etc., etc. all of us have earned punishment by our sin. We all deserve God's wrath. We all deserve punishment, but instead we get his promise, his promise that we will be saved. God is a God of mercy. Our salvation is a victory of mercy. Our sanctification is a victory of mercy. Our restored relationships are victories of mercy. See, every victory that we have over any enemy in our life is a victory of mercy mercy, whether it's a victory over sin, a victory over addiction, a victory over seemingly destroyed marriages, a victory over wrecked parent-child relationships, a victory over bitterness, victory over greed, over lust, over gluttony, over anger, over gossip, a victory over lacking uh, compassion when we need to show compassion to those around us, a victory of helping those who, who really need a hand up in, in difficult seasons of life, uh, a, a, a lack of uh, care for the lonely or the disabled, Anytime we have victories that, that cause us to be more and more the men and women of God that we have been equipped to be, that we have been called to be, that we've been commissioned to be, anytime we have a victory over our flesh, over temptation, over sin, this is a victory of mercy that God has provided for us such a great salvation that he has anointed us to be his people. And now we are in fact acting as his people. Our victory over every single enemy we face now or have faced in the past or will face in all of our tomorrows will be won and always won because of God's mercy. It is not by merit that Abraham received a promise. It is not by merit that Daniel was saved and spared from the mouth of the lions. It is not by merit that any of our fathers were ever saved. Listen, folks, we don't earn salvation. Salvation is unmerited. It is an act of mercy from God. And to this end, we praise God. We praise him for his goodness. We heap gratitude unto God. 
We thank him. We praise his name. We look for ways that we can lay down our lives as Christ has laid down his life for us. We strive to serve God for all the mercy that he has shown us. Yet even in this desiring to serve, we still have these hurdles, these obstacles that, that would come against the, the heart that wants to serve. And as, as we look here in, in the final verse of our passage, verse 74, we, we see one big overarching label for these obstacles, these hurdles that would prevent us from serving. And that is fear. Fear is a common denominator for all humanity. So cool that Brian hit on this last week as he was talking about the fear experienced when John the Baptist was born, the people were kind of gripped by fear and he started naming off and listing different fears. And he mentioned nectophobia. Totally thought that was the fear of necks. Like seriously, he's, I'm writing down necto, how do you spell that? Fear of necks. No, it's not fear of necks. I'm really smart. I'm not. As Claire will give great testimony to that statement. Uh, if, if there was a fear of next, which there may be, I guess there would be a horror movie made about the fear of next, starring giraffes. <laughs> Maybe a superhero that crochets scarves and subdues giraffes and wraps scarves around their necks. Fear is a feeling we are all familiar with. Fear can be fleeting or fear can be overwhelming. Here's why Zechariah mentions fear during this prophecy. Fear hinders service to God. Fear hinders service to God. Fear weakens faith. It slows the forward progress of faith. And it also slows the forward progress of at least two other things. And that is personal sanctification and corporate proclamation. Fear hinders personal sanctification. And fear hinders corporate proclamation. The proclamation of God. The proclamation of his gospel. When we get to Luke 174... God does not, however, excuse fear. Although fear is common for all people. And although we all maybe fear different things, we don't get to this verse and read that it is all right to have feelings of fear. We don't read that it is okay to be a tad bit frightened or that it is understandable if you still are growing your courage. It doesn't say that it's perfectly human to have fear. And if you're still a little bit afraid, then we'll work around that. No, it doesn't. Instead, we are called to serve God and put to death any excuse that might stem from fear. In our service to others, in our service to the Lord, we don't allow fear to hold us back. Zechariah prophesies that our salvation, this, this salvation that comes from the, the horn of salvation, that was one with the weapon of Christ, that was one with his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, this, this salvation that we have experienced by grace through faith, that he prophesies that when we tap into this understanding, when we really grab a hold of and buy into, when we push all our chips in, that Christ is our weapon, 
that he is our salvation, then fear becomes obsolete. Our knowledge of the sheer power and the might of this weapon, this Messiah, fills us with the sort of faith that defies fear. Are you walking with the sort of faith that defies fear? Here are some maybe outflows of what that type of faith looks like because we know the power of fear. We know that fear will grip us. It will suffocate us. We need to be willing to step out in faith. We need to be willing to confess sin. Have you noticed in your heart of hearts that fear creates a wall between you and confession? That in your spiritually sober moments, you have this great unction inside of you to confess. You are weighed down with secret sins and shameful sins, soul-scarring sins. And you want a release from that burden. You want to confess. You want to follow the Bible's blueprint from James chapter five that says confess your sins one to another. You want to get to that point, but what if? What if you knock on the door of your pastor and, and you sit down and you begin to confess and that confession is not met with a gracious response? What if you're judged? What if you're mocked? What if you're ridiculed? What if your sins are then put on display for the entire church to see? What if? What Zechariah is saying, what the word of God is saying, what God is imploring us to do is to destroy those fears. Let our faith override our fear so that we can walk victorious over our enemy. What about the fear of granting forgiveness? Forgiveness is often hardest to grant to those who are closest to us. When people offend, especially our close loved ones, the offenses can leave a lasting mark. We can be brutally hurt. Words can shake us to the core. They can demoralize us. It is the power of God to forgive. It is the weapon of God for the believer to forgive. It is the uh, uh, exemplification, if that's a word, of Christ to forgive. What I mean by that is we exemplify Christ when we forgive others, regardless of how grotesquely we have been offended. We need to be faithful to override our fear to pray risky prayers. We need to pray risky prayers. And listen, for, for the maturing believer, this can be a fearful thing to do. What if God answers that risky prayer? What if God comes through on that prayer? Then what? Are we willing to have the faith to pray things like, God, show me ways that I can be more selfless. Show me ways that I am sinning blindly. God, reveal sin in my life that I can't even see. Father, show me people that I have wronged. Show me people that are hurting around me. Show me people who are starving to death while eating every morsel this world can offer, yet being denied the food of the gospel. 
Lord, punch my ticket to a faraway land that I may go and spend my life wearing flip-flops and shorts preaching the gospel to people who may otherwise never have a long-term missionary share Christ with them. Lord, help me go to my spouse and seek reconciliation. Lord, give me the courage to do that. Lord, help me to serve more faithfully in the body of believers that you have planted me inside that I might be a service to them. Are you willing to pray risky prayers knowing that God might answer your risky prayers? Or are you gripped with fear? We're nearing the point where we quote unquote land this plane. We are saved by God. This is a result of his mercy, not our merit. That in our salvation, our fears would be put aside, that our faith would grow, and that our service to him would be spending our lives in worship each and every moment of each and every day. Will you trust God to grow your faith to the point that your faith actually outgrows and devours your fear? We ask the rhetorical question, what is there any longer to fear? If you are saved, then I realize the word if is a big word. But if you are saved... It is because your enemy has been defeated that God has shown mercy and grace and kindness and love to you. What is there left to fear? You belong to the most high king. Now live for God and serve. So this has two very natural applications for all of us today. If you're a believer, I encourage you to let your life reflect your salvation. This is done in the way that you put your faith on display bravely, courageously, passionately. Now, if you are living in opposition to God, meaning you're not saved, you're not walking with him, you're not following Christ, you don't have a love for God, you've not by grace through faith repented of your sin and trusted Christ to be the Lord of your life, but you're thinking, as this pastor is preaching, I can see that my attempts to experience salvation are falling short. This world cannot save me. My strength cannot save me. My intellect cannot save me. I need the horn of salvation. I need Christ to save me. Then the natural outflow of this is saying, yes, I will walk with Christ. I will run to him and pray that God receives me as one of his own. I will follow Christ all the days of my life no matter which camp you find yourself in this morning, knowing the extent to which God goes in order for our salvation to be won and secured by Christ, our response should be to joyfully and passionately spend our lives worshiping him. Will you worship Christ the King? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son who gave his life that we could be ransomed and redeemed. Thank you for his death on the cross, making 
a way for us to be called your sons and daughters. Lord, thank you for sending Christ to be born of Mary, to live among people just like us, to suffer and die on the cross, to be stuck in a tomb for three days, to be resurrected, to conquer death, hell, and the grave, and to now be seated with you, ruling and reigning over us. Lord, we praise you. And Lord, we praise you for our salvation. We thank you for being a God who makes wonderful, incredible promises to his people, who fulfills those promises, who always keeps his word. We thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. Father, we pray this morning that as we, being your sons and daughters, enter into this Christmas season, Lord, that our hearts would be drawn more and more to you and less and less to the things of this world. We love you and pray this in the name of Christ, our King. Amen.